Welcome to the podcast from First Presbyterian Church, Arlington Heights. Our sermon series is called Parallax, where we're going to be looking at topics from the Bible from two different perspectives. I hope you enjoy. All right, so our first scripture comes from Luke 10, 38 to 42. This will be a familiar passage to many of you. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second scripture comes from Romans 14, 13 to 17. This is Paul speaking to the church in Rome. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin for one whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's my turn to start today. Um, We, this fall, our sermon series has been called Parallax. It comes from the Greek word parallaxis. If you have not been here previous weeks, I think this is our ninth week. And um, the word parallaxis means alteration. So basically, a parallax is when two people can look at the same object, but if we look at it from different locations, we see it differently. And in this sermon series, we've taken scripture, and we've had two pastors preaching, always Alex and then either TC or myself, and we look at the scripture from our two different perspectives. So this week, the perspective, it's called freedom to abstain, but our perspective really has to do with how far do we go in um, giving up our own freedom, giving of ourselves? Do we give it all, or is there a line in there somewhere? Is there a place where we say this much we give, but this much we keep for ourselves? Um, And I'm going to start with the story from Luke's Gospel. And I am not old enough to go to the Wise and Sage dinner, just want to make that clear. I'm not 65 yet, uh, but neither am I gifted at memorizing sermons. And I actually had a friend tell me it could contribute to senility. Because there would be like too much in my brain. Any excuse will do. So today the question before us is, how far do we go in giving things up? And we're going to start with the reading from Luke's gospel, which is familiar to most of us 
who are longtime churchgoers, and that's the story of Mary and Martha preparing for uh, Jesus as their guest. And I'll give you the spoiler alert, they prepare in very different ways. And so the question that always comes before the reader is, who's doing it right? Is it Martha, or is it Mary, or is it some combination of the two? But before I go into the Martha and Mary story, I want to tell you that just preceding this story in Luke's gospel is the story of the Good Samaritan. The rich man goes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, love your neighbor. He says, who's my neighbor? And essentially, Jesus says, everyone is your neighbor. So Jesus says to the rich man, go and do. And then in the very next story of Mary and Martha, Jesus says to Martha, sit, be quiet, listen, take a breath. So we have the two opposing views there, both from Jesus. Mary is choosing to sit at the feet of Jesus, to be filled up spiritually, to listen to what the teacher is saying, because who knows if Jesus will ever be in her home again. Martha, on the other hand, is someone that at least most women I know can relate to, and that is that she's in the kitchen, and she is busy getting everything ready, and she wants to get it all out on the table at the same time. So Mary has been able to let go of all those shoulda, woulda, couldas that we have in our brain, but Martha, Martha is trapped by the shoulds and the woulds and the coulds. Now most of us, as I said, relate to Martha, but Jesus seems to set a different boundary in this story. Alex, it's your turn. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I just want to say before I get going that uh, Judy's super happy because this is her last sermon in this series. <laughs> so, for my part, I want to talk a little bit about this scripture from Romans. And uh, I want to set it up for you guys because, of course, I want to give you a little bit of context, right? Shocker, I know. Uh, but I want to tell you about the church in Rome. First of all, we don't actually know who founded this church. Don't know who established it. But what we do know is that the original members of that church, they were predominantly Jewish. So what this meant was that they were familiar with the first five books of the Bible. You all know, what's the first book of the Bible? You all know that one, right? Genesis. So we got Genesis, oh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Very good. Okay, so those are the first five books of the Bible. They would have been familiar with the Torah. They also would have been abiding by kosher law, and what do we mean by that? That means that they wouldn't eat pork, they wouldn't eat shellfish, things of that nature. Now, as the church in Rome begins to grow, they start taking in members who are not Jewish. We refer to those people as what? Gentiles. Gentiles. So, these people, they come into the church, and most of these people, they have nothing to do with Judaism. In fact, they worship the gods and goddesses. So, who do they worship? They formerly worshipped Jupiter, Venus, Mars, things of that nature. 
That's where they would go. They would go to those temples. So when they convert, or when they start going to the church in Rome, what happens is they essentially become Jewish. They start worshiping the Jewish God, and they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You with me so far? Okay. So they have a little bit of a problem, though. And the problem has to do with their diets. So today, if you want to eat meat for dinner, what do you do? Go to the grocery store, right? Get your meat. Maybe you throw it in the fridge. You wait a couple of days, you eat it. Back in the day, back in the ancient world, if you wanted to eat meat for dinner, you had to buy it that day from the meat market and go prepare it that evening because they didn't have refrigeration like we did. Now, the vendors at the meat market, they got their meat from two different sources. They got their meat from the farmers who would raise cattle in the fields and bring them in. And they also got it from the priests who would sacrifice various animals to those pagan gods and goddesses. So you didn't know if you went to the meat market if you were eating meat that just came straight from the field or if you were eating meat that had been sacrificed to Jupiter or to Venus or whatever it might be. Now for the Jewish people, they didn't really care about this. Didn't matter to them at all because you know why? They didn't believe those gods and goddesses were real, so they're like, whatever, it's just meat, right? However, for these former pagans who would worship those gods, they did have a problem with this because they felt that by eating that meat, it would make them unclean. That meat was tainted. It actually would cause them to be impure. So as a solution to this problem, these new pagan converts to Christianity, they became vegetarian. They didn't eat meat. So they abstained from meat so as to maintain their faith. Now this caused some of the Jewish members of the church to judge them rather harshly. And they said, well, you're just weak because you can't wrap your mind around the fact that these gods and goddesses, they're not real. And so this labeling of them being weak actually was causing a lot of division in the church. And so in order to mend this division, Paul comes out in the section that we read today, and he's basically telling the Jewish members of the church, he's like, look, you need to sacrifice your freedom to eat meat in order to support these people who have a problem with this particular issue. In other words, what he's saying is this. He's like, look, I get it. I get that you guys understand these gods and goddesses aren't real, that it doesn't matter if you go to the meat market and eat the meat, you know it's not unclean. But here's the problem. We have these new people who are in the church, and they are struggling with this. They're really having a tough time. And so what you need to do is you need to sacrifice your freedom to eat meat. You need to become vegetarian and walk alongside them because the last thing we want to have happen is for them to backslide in to worshiping those gods and goddesses again. In other words, what he's saying, the idea he's putting forward is that sometimes as a Christian, your job is to sacrifice your freedoms for the benefit of those who are struggling and in need. Back to you, Judy. He sets me up so well. So I don't have any argument at all with the premise that Christians are called to sacrifice. I think that is a fundamental aspect of our Christian faith. We're called to give up, to let go, to give back to God in some way or another. Following the way of Jesus is a way of sacrifice and suffering. Jesus himself says, pick up your cross and follow me. And that cross is the ultimate sign of sacrifice. 
Now, most of us are good at being Marthas. We want to be busy. We want to make sure everything is just right. We don't know how to say no. And when we do say no, it, we're just not very comfortable with it at all. Now, think about what the first question is that you ask when you hear news of someone you know being sick, being grief-stricken, uh, losing a job, anything. Anything uh, difficult happens. What's the first question that most of us ask? What can I do? How can I help? It's a do question. What can I do? We're stuck in that Martha mode, thinking that doing something is the only way that we can make a difference. Whereas maybe sitting and offering a prayer for that person is equally valuable in that moment. Or maybe going to that person, but simply sitting with them without doing anything is what we can do. Tying our identity as Christians to too closely to busyness and doing and sacrifice can literally make us sick. It can make us sick physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And I'm sad to say that I've been there. I have been, I have pushed myself beyond a reasonable point in my own physical health where I literally had to be told to stay home and stay in bed for three weeks. I couldn't believe it. But I had pushed myself in the doing. And when you push yourself too far, your healthy relationships might suffer. For 10 years, Ken and I served as co-pastors in Louisville, Kentucky, at Beulah Presbyterian Church. We moved there in 94, and our children were two, four, and seven. So those of you that have been parents, you know what significant ages those are and how much that all involves. I was serving in a church that didn't even really think it wanted a woman minister. And so I was caught in this place of proving myself as a pastor and also trying to prove myself as a good mother. And it was exhausting. Most people who know me well know that I still have trouble saying no to things. If, I think it's, if it's something that I feel passionate about or that I think is important to my church, to the people I work with, to my family, to my friends, even to strangers, I will go the extra mile to make it happen, regardless of what the cost is to my own freedom in that situation. Yet, after 33 years in ordained ministry, I can also tell you, because I've learned the hard way, that if I don't take that time to be a Mary, if I don't sit quietly, get enough sleep, I, I need a lot of sleep. Alex catches me at my desk sleeping all the time. He knows my high need of sleep. No, seriously, I need a lot of sleep. So if, if I don't get enough sleep, if I don't take that time to sit and quietly try to discern what the priorities are, where God really wants me to give, I'm worn out. And I'm no good to anybody in those situations. 
I wonder sometimes when I look at Martha if that's what made her so angry. I think many of us have been in that position of getting so angry because we're doing all this stuff. Nobody seems to notice. Nobody wants to help us. And so Martha, the anger was just building up. And she went out there and she yelled at Jesus and Mary. Jesus, how dare you let my sister sit here and do nothing while I'm doing all the work. It seemed that no one was recognizing her need or giving it a, a legitimate place to be. Well, I would certainly agree with you <coughs> that uh, we certainly shouldn't sacrifice all the time. Would you agree with that? I mean, if you do, what's going to happen? You're going to get worn <coughs> out, are you not? I mean, and that's, a, that's exactly what occurs. But to your point, I do think we do have to figure out, you know, when are we asked to give willingly of our freedoms, to give up the things that are dear to us, and when should we be allowed to stay back? Now, in my scripture, right, we're talking about kind of an odd thing, right? Like when I explain that whole thing to you, had you ever heard that before? I'm sure many of you probably haven't. And so this idea that you have a group of people, right, who can't eat meat because they think it's unclean, and, you know, now they got to all be vegetarian, that's a strange idea to us. So can I update the example a little bit so that we can all kind of be in the same place with it about trying to give up some of our freedoms? So let's use a different example, an example that really every single person in here can relate to. So all of us in here know someone who struggles with alcohol, struggles with an addiction to alcohol. And if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I don't know anybody, you do, you just don't realize it. Everybody knows somebody. Everybody has touched somebody who struggles with an addiction to alcohol. So here's a question I pose to you. Let's say that a person you know who struggles with alcohol, they come to you and they say, you know what? I think I'm going to try to get sober. I'm going to get clean. What is your responsibility to that person to help them get clean? Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, I have no responsibility to that person because that's their problem, not mine. But you have to remember, what does Paul say? Paul says that one of our responsibilities as Christians is to be willing to sacrifice our freedom to benefit those who are struggling. So let's say that you don't have a problem with alcohol, that you're fine. You know your limits, you know where to stop, and you have a friend who does. They do have a problem. They don't know when to stop. Should you sacrifice your freedom to drink whenever you want to, to help that person remain sober? And the answer that Paul gives to that question is absolutely yes. You should be willing to sacrifice your freedom to drink alcohol whenever you want to, to help this person live a better life. Now, why is that the case? Well, it's the case because when you think about it, why is it that people who are trying to stay sober in their addictions, why do they relapse? They relapse because they're spending time around people who are engaging in the very behaviors they're trying to avoid. So if you invite your friend over to your house, right, and you're sitting there and you're drinking beers and you're like, so how's that whole staying sober thing going for you, right? <laughs> you you're not exactly helping the situation, are you, right? You're providing a temptation 
to them in that. And in essence, you can cause that person to stumble and relapse. And as a Christian, you simply can't do that. We are called, we have a higher calling as Christians. We are called to be people who are willing to sacrifice and live into. We have to be with people who are struggling. We have to walk next to those people. And if that means giving up our freedoms, then we should be willing to make that sacrifice to help somebody who's in need. Whoa. Okay. So you make me look like, well, I don't care what you do. <laughs> no, I, I would agree that, you know, if, if we have a friend that's struggling, I mean, if you have a friend that's working really hard to lose weight, and you walk into the office with a dozen donuts and put them on her desk, that is an unkind thing to do. And that is not being, that is causing your brother or sister to stumble or be tempted. But I want to um, share with you a word that most of you have probably heard before. It's codependence. And codependence is a word that we throw around in our society, our culture a lot right now because there, there is a lot of addiction that's, that's going on. And a codependent person is a person that gets so wrapped up in the emotional needs of another person that they can't discern their own needs anymore. Now, a key, so a key sign of codependence would be that your sense of purpose in life wraps around fixing or meeting the needs of the other person. That would be a codependent person. Now, codependence is tricky. And I first heard the word probably 15 years ago or so. And it was really hard for me initially to say, what's the difference between being codependent and being a Christian? Because we are taught as Christians that we are not to cause our brother to stumble, that we should give up our own freedoms if in helping another person achieve sobriety or achieve healthy weight loss or whatever it may be. And when you think about it, extreme sacrifice for another can feel pretty good initially, right? I mean. Doesn't it make you feel good about yourself when you have given up something significant for another person? I know I get caught in that trap a lot. I think I was, um, well, let me back up just a few sentences here. I was telling my husband, Ken, that since coming back here, as many of you knew, I grew up in this church, and then I was gone for 30, about 30 years. And um, since coming back here, I've had a whole host of different memories opening up for me of when I was younger. And so I remembered um, this time when I was 15, and we were here. It was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Oh. <laughs> Circa 1869. Oh, I'm sorry. Alex! Oh, my God! Oh. Oh my gosh, thank you. That's a little more accurate. 
It's your last one. I couldn't let you go. Uh, man. <laughs> so I was 13 in that picture, so I had a couple years. I was here. It was when we had Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. We always had a worship service on the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. And that night, it might have been the first time I ever heard it, but I heard about people that weren't going to have Thanksgiving. And I grew up in a very white, privileged world and community. I mean, I grew up in this community. And so the thought that I was going to have this abundant Thanksgiving and somebody wasn't going to have anything to put on their table totally tore at my heart. And I opened my wallet. Alex is going to love this part, too. And I took out all I had in my wallet, which I think was around 10 or $15. Now, the big deal about that $15, do you have another picture for this one? <laughs> is that I earned it babysitting, Reagan, hear this, for 50 cents an hour. Yeah, a lot of folks in here remember those days. So anyway, I had earned this money babysitting for 50 cents an hour. And I took it out of my wallet and I gave it to the offering so that we would feed a hungry family. And then after church, um, a bunch of my friends said, hey, why don't we walk uptown, that's what we call downtown Arlington Heights, and get a Coke or something. And I said, sure, I'll go ask. And then I realized like, I had no money left because I'd given it all in the offering. So like any good self-respecting 15-year-old, I went. Up, I found my dad in the back of the narthex. I said, uh, Dad, um, some of my friends want to know if I can go out and get a Coke with them. Is that okay with you? He said, yeah, sure. He gave me a curfew. And then I said, oh, and Dad, I put all of my money in the offering plate. So I don't have any money for a Coke. And my dad smiled, and he pulled out his wallet. And he gave me a few dollars, and he said, next time, you might want to think about that before you put everything you have in the offering plate. Now, I'd like to say that I learned that lesson very well. But I did not learn it as well as my parents or even my husband would have My husband is fond of telling me that I need my own foundation so that I can give away money and we can still pay our mortgage. <laughs> the story of Martha and Mary is a story of boundaries and setting appropriate boundaries. Sometimes we're asked to give everything we have in the moment. And other times, it's okay. It doesn't mean we're not being a good Christian. It's okay to hold back a little bit, or at least to sit quietly long enough to discern what God is asking us to do. All right, well, I would say that definitely you are correct that when we're talking about this idea of sacrifice, that sacrifice does not apply equally in all situations, particularly when you're talking about something like codependence. Uh, you don't want to be in a situation where you are giving and giving and giving, and you're actually enabling that other person 
to continue with the behaviors that they've been doing. Like, that's no good, right? We agree with that? Yeah, that's no good. However, I would say this. I do think that a willingness to sacrifice, whether it be your time, your resources, or your freedoms, to help people who are struggling, that that is an essential component of the Christian walk. And that if you are unwilling to sacrifice, then you are missing out on what is the most transformative aspect of the Christian life, in my mind. And so, I want to end this morning by telling you a quick story. She told you a story. I'm going to tell you a story, too. And this is a story about how a little bit of sacrifice can go a long way. So when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I became friends with a guy named Elvis Jimenez. Now, Elvis, in case you are wondering, was named after the king, Elvis Presley. His mother loved Elvis Presley. And uh, he came over to the United States when he was two years old. He immigrated from Honduras. And he had a really, really hard childhood. His mother and her drug dealer boyfriend would beat Elvis with impunity. And he was disowned by his biological father when he was 18. He was kicked out of the house. And so pretty much every adult he had ever known in his life who was supposed to care for him rejected him. Now, maybe in spite of or because of these things that he went through, he was an incredibly resourceful person. He had a very charismatic personality, which he used to his advantage. People were drawn to him. People from all walks of life found him to be a, a remarkable person. He was charming, funny. He was really good at drawing. He was a prodigious artist. And he was an intellectual. And what he lacked in monetary resources, because it was just him, he was providing for himself, he made up for through his network of friends. However, like many people who have dealt with severe abuse, he used alcohol as a way to kind of numb out the pain from all of that trauma. And so he ended up getting in a bit of trouble as a result of this. He had a number of DUIs. And to make matters worse, whenever he was arrested, he was often belligerent and hostile towards the police. So for every step forward he would take in his life, he would often take two steps backwards because of poor choices and decisions he would make or because he was hanging around the wrong people. So when he met me, I was the first peer in his peer group he had ever met who didn't drink alcohol. He, I was like a unicorn to him. He never met anybody like me before. And so we start hanging out. We start spending time together. And as a result of spending time with each other, I, was, I told him, I was like, you're welcome to cover my house whenever you want to. We spend time together whenever you want. And he started spending more and more of his time with me when he wasn't working. And so as a result, he was drinking less and less. And so he felt like, for the first time in his life, he was able to kind of cope with life without alcohol. And so eventually, he made a decision that he wanted to quit drinking. And I supported him in that decision. I said, sure, like, absolutely. And so we made a pact. I was in college at that point. I was going to college in Texas. So I had to leave to go back. And I said, look, whenever you have an issue where you feel like you need to go drink, what I want you to do is I want you to leave your house. I want you to get out of your house. Go somewhere else. Go get out of the environment that you're in. And he said, OK, I'll do that. So everything was good for the first few months. 
And then in January, his roommate decided to have a party. Threw a party at his house, all these people come over, and there's just alcohol everywhere. And he thinks, okay, I gotta get out. So he puts on his running shoes. It's 11 p.m. at night in January. Now, it's not as cold as it gets here, but it's still in the 30s. And he goes for a run. And he's running for 30 minutes. And he stops for a minute, and he's, he starts to stretch, and he's thinking to himself, why am I out here? This is crazy. Why am I doing this? He's cursing my name, of course, while he's thinking about it. And he decides, okay, I'll go a little bit further. So he runs a little bit further, and then he stops again. And at this point, he decides, you know what? I'm going to go home. This is, this is ridiculous. But just as he's about to leave, he sees these lights off in the distance. And these lights, they're down by the river. Now, this is January. There's no boats in the river at this point in time. And so he's kind of taken aback by this. And so he runs over, and he sees that there's a ramp that's going down into the water. And at the bottom of the water is a car that has driven into it. And so he goes down, and he finds an old lady who's inside, and she's screaming for help. And, of course, nobody can hear her. And what she had done is she had mistaken that ramp for her driveway and had gone down into it. And so he gets her attention. He knocks on the window, and he says, I'm going to go get help. Now, this is the days before cell phones where everybody has one. So he runs up to the house that's nearest to this ramp, and he's just knocking on the door as hard as he can. People wake up. He says, go call 911. He goes back down, and he spends time with this woman until the fire department comes and is able to pull her out. Now, had he not been there that evening, she absolutely would have died from hypothermia because the water was starting to come in through the engine compartment. Now, I often think about what had to happen in order for that woman to be saved. Because had Elvis not gone for a run at 11 p.m. at night to get out of his house, he wouldn't have found that lady there. And the reason he was going on that run was because he was trying to stay sober. And the reason he was trying to stay sober is because someone was willing to walk alongside him and sacrifice and try to help him get to a better point in his life. Now, I tell you this story because I know that when we're talking about sacrificing our freedoms, that very often our gut reaction is no way. Not going to do it. Not going to sacrifice. Because naturally we say, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do. And Judy has brought up some very important points where she has said that actually you can go too far with that. However, I keep Elvis's story in mind all the time because what it shows me is that when you are willing to sacrifice just a little bit, that sometimes you can end up impacting people in ways you never imagined. And so my prayer for you today is that you might be willing to sacrifice. Today, we're asking you to sacrifice some of your money to help out the church, and you're going to be doing that sacrifice. But I want you to ask yourself in your life, where is God calling me to sacrifice in other areas? Because if you're willing to sacrifice, if you're willing to lay down your freedoms, then you never know how that could ripple out and impact people in ways you've never imagined. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.